Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's episode is supported by another true crime podcast called True Crime Cast. Small town murders are often overlooked, but they can be just as bloody and unsettling as any high profile murder. True Crime Cast brings these crimes to light. Join Jamie and John as they discuss a different crime each week. Hear about small-town Appalachian murder mysteries that have flown under the radar until now. Listen to True Crime Cast on your podcast app of choice. Distributed by Stoveleg Media. Welcome to Case Closed, a podcast about the times the bad guys don't get away with it, the times the good guys discover exactly who the killer is, and how sometimes that's just the beginning of the story. I'm Charlie Spicer. When we left off last episode, the trial for the murder of Aaron Corwin was over. After deliberating for only 15 minutes, the jurors had come to a unanimous decision. Christopher Lee was guilty. As the decision was announced in the courtroom, Aaron's family and friends felt relieved. The days of gruesome testimony and reliving what had happened had come to a close. But before she left the courtroom that day, there was one more thing that Aaron's mother, Lore, wanted to do. Sitting through the murder trial for her daughter's killer was obviously, you know, an incredibly emotionally exhausting experience for Lore. Most of the time she was there with friends and she had a lot of support. But, you know, her husband chose not to attend the trial. Laura said she was the type of person who wanted to be there and see every single day and know all the facts. And and Bill Hevlin, you know, it was just too much for him. At the end of the trial, Laura wanted to reach out to the jury. Regardless of whether they found Chris innocent or guilty, Laura wanted to thank them for listening to her daughter's story. My friend and I were downstairs waiting to see the jury because we just wanted to tell them thank you. I had written them thank you cards because I wasn't sure if we'd be allowed to tell them thank you. And in the thank you cards, it started with, no matter what the verdict is, I want to thank you for giving up so much of your time. Nicole and her brother are sitting on a bench nearby. He pulls up his picture on his phone and comes and shoves it in my face. He goes, she remembers everything that was done to her. And I just kind of looked at him and he turned around and walked away. So then we just kind of turned away from them because we were not going to engage in that. You know? And then Nicole starts screaming on the top of her lungs about how 
know, she remembered everything, that, every touch, every tickle, everything that was done to her. You know, liberty just, and then she starts screaming at us because she quit laughing, and we're like, we're laughing, but that's okay, you know, and stuff, and so she got kicked out. As the bailiffs see what's happening, um, they confront Nicole and her brother, and they escort them outside the courtroom. Outside of the courthouse, cameras are lined up on the sidewalk, and as she's walking past, she screams at the press, put that camera down, he's a former Marine, show some respect. It would not be Laura's last visit to the courthouse in San Bernardino. On Tuesday, November 29th, Aaron's family and friends returned one more time for Chris Lee's sentencing. This is the first chance that they all have to give their victims' impact statements. Laura, when she has the chance to stand up, she talks about Aaron, her sweet animal whisperer, and how devastated she was when she found out she was missing, and spends a little bit of time talking about the mental impact. She had to go on antidepressants, she had periods of depression, things that had, you know, been of a joy to her in the past, she lost all a joy for. Laura said at one point while making a quilt for her grandson that she realized with great sadness that she would never actually make one for Aaron's children and what a loss that was. She mustered this sense of compassion for Chris's family. Laura had expressed, you know, feeling that Chris's family and parents, you know, never raised their son thinking that one day he would have done something like this. Next, it was Chris's turn to address the court. When Chris has the chance to stand up in front of the judge, he continues with his story that he never uh, meant to kill Aaron that day, that he was in a rage, the same thing he said on the witness stand. Chris said that he had confessed to Aaron's killing in an attempt to save his humanity. During the victim's impact statements, when, you know, the family was speaking, there was tears coming down from many of the onlookers in the courtroom. But everyone was kind of just stunned when Chris had the chance to talk because he mostly talked about himself and the reasons for confessing for himself. And there was no real emotion. It didn't feel genuine. It felt like... He was discontinuing these lies that he had told for days and days on the witness stand. Then it was time for the sentencing. In a death penalty case, um, it comes with automatic appeals that can go on for years and years and years. And I don't think anyone wanted that in this case. I have no problem with the death penalty, but I've never had to look at it from the victim's point of view before this. They're guaranteed multiple appeals. I feel like a jury would have a harder time being unanimous if the death penalty was on the table. For whatever reason, it was not decided to be a death penalty qualified case. Still, the sentence was mandatory when Chris was convicted of first-degree murder, which was that he would spend every day for the rest of his life in prison.
The judge, who had sat through the entire trial as well, was really sympathetic about Aaron, stating something to the effect of, the best I can do is punish the person who is responsible for taking her life and put him in jail for the rest of his life. With the sound of the judge's gavel, the trial was finally over. Chris was transferred to a prison cell in San Diego, and despite the toll of the trial, Nicole stood by him and continues to do so. There's a lot of speculation whether what Nicole knew and when she knew it. Is it possible that Nicole knew that Aaron was going to be killed that day? There's even speculation that Nicole might have been the one who encouraged Chris to do it. What she knew and when was a huge question for prosecutors and for, for the detectives. Whether or not she knew then, she knows now for sure that Chris took Aaron's life. He admitted to it on the witness stand, and she has chosen to stay by him and chosen to defend him. And so that says something, I think, you know, she's standing by her man, knowing that he took a life of a teenage girl he was having an affair with. For Aaron's family and friends, it was time to move forward, too. When we come back from the break, we check in on Aaron's family and friends and how her story continues to make an impact. This episode is supported by the new memoir, Hollywood Godfather, by Johnny Russo. Johnny Russo had no acting experience when he walked onto the set of The Godfather in 1971. Fortunately, he didn't need to know how to act. At 25, he already knew the mob inside and out. His adventures with the mob started when he was a boy in Little Italy, where mafia legend Frank Costello took him under his wing. Over the years, Russo went on to befriend Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, Marilyn Monroe, Liza Minnelli, and many more exciting people. Now, in Hollywood Godfather, he tells a no-holds-barred story about a life filled with violence, glamour, sex, and fun. Robert De Niro called Hollywood Godfather a worthy read, and Publishers Weekly agrees that it packs a punch. You can find a copy of Hollywood Godfather wherever books are sold. It's available in hardcover, ebook and digital audio. Again, that's Hollywood Godfather by Johnny Russo. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. Aaron Corwin's killer had finally been brought to justice, but the verdict and sentencing felt hollow. After going through something like this and the and the justice process, there's like a sense that, you know, it will feel over and complete but you still don't have the person back in your life. And there's still that empty hole that every Christmas, every holiday, that that person will never be there again. And so it was over and everyone was glad that they didn't have that trial hanging over their heads. But there was still such deep grief dealing with the loss of Aaron and everything that had happened since that she had passed. Aaron's best friend, Jesse Trentum, the friend Aaron talked to multiple times a day, shared secrets with, 
and ultimately proved to be a crucial witness in solving Aaron's murder, remembers the emptiness of finding out the verdict. How does that feel? It doesn't... It's not really... I guess it's technically justice, but it's not... I don't want to say it's not enough, but it's not... Nothing's ever going to bring her back. For Linda Comley, Erin's friend from her barn days in Tennessee, the senselessness of the crime remains a mystery. I don't, I don't understand why that guy did that. He was going to leave. Why do that? Why didn't you just leave? You know, that's what her mom and I keep saying. Why didn't he just leave? Indeed. Why didn't Chris just leave? Although Erin was pregnant, Chris was still planning on moving back to Alaska with his wife and child. Why not just go? That question points us toward an uncomfortable truth about Aaron Corwin's case. Although it was in many ways extraordinary, there was one way in which it was all too common. It's very disturbing, but for pregnant women, a leading cause of death is murder. And these are women who are most likely killed by their husbands or their boyfriends, who their main desire is to get rid of the baby. They're afraid of the consequences that when the baby is born. And to get rid of that and to prevent that, they kill the pregnant woman. The CDC and the U.S. Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health, have listed homicide as a top cause of death for pregnant women. That's exactly what, you know, Chris's motive, I think, was in this case. He was married. He was about to resume his life in Alaska, and he had a pregnant girlfriend that was about to expose everything. He knew from the first time that they were caught that if Aaron turned up pregnant, that Nicole would leave him. He might not see his daughter Liberty again. And instead of being a man and facing the consequences, he decided to kill Aaron to get rid of his problem. For the loved ones left behind, like Aaron's mother, Lore, moving forward has meant grappling with a variety of complex emotions. It was, you know, anger, bitterness. I mean, that's a human emotion. You know, what makes anyone think that this is an okay thing to do for any reason? But then, you know, you realize that being angry and bitter isn't hurting him at all. It's hurting us. So I decided I had to forgive him and give that up because, I, you know, he's already taken enough from me. And if I was angry and bitter, then he's going to have my mind at all times. He's going to have my heart. He's going to have my soul. And I'm not giving that to him. I just, I could not let him destroy me. I think forgiveness is very powerful in these these types of cases. When someone is dealing with the loss of uh, of a loved one to violent murder, it's always going to be in their lives and in their head and in their heart. 
but to be able to forgive is to put that in a different place. You know, there's there's nothing that anyone can do in this situation. The person is gone, and and it's the only thing you can control is the way you react to it. Aaron's family and friends also take comfort in the light that has emerged from such darkness. In this case, one heinous person had done something despicable, and he had taken Aaron's life and the life of her unborn baby. But the entire community of 29 Palms came together for this girl. The searchers who spent weeks out in the desert um, looking for her body, the homicide detectives and the sheriff's department who worked tirelessly to put together a case against Chris, the prosecutor the jury, everyone who came out. And so in a way, there was something sort of inspirational about that story. Like I said, one person had taken her life, but so many people had worked to restore justice for her family. And they thought like Aaron was one of their own. And even today in 29 Palms, everyone knows Aaron's name and they remember her story and who she was in her life. Doug Billings, the caving expert who identified the mine where Aaron was found, decided to honor her memory permanently. We went out to pay respect to their little like candlelight vigil on Twin Palms, and and I said, you know, it's like there's a lot of people that were out here that you know were involved, family, friends, Marine Corps. Like, oh, we should just go out and go somewhere and make a little garden for her, you know. Off a desert road, a few miles from the mine where Aaron's body was found, uh, Doug Billings and some of the search and rescue guys constructed this memorial garden for Aaron and her memory. It's very beautiful, surrounded by rocks, some of them painted in one of Aaron's favorite colors, purple. Inside, there's some purple cactuses and desert flowers. There's a bench with Aaron's name on it that says Aaron's Garden and a bucket uh, with a notepad inside where people can write down memories of Aaron or write down their thoughts when they had stumbled upon this beautiful garden. And when you go, it's just pages and pages. Over the years, people have come and brought gifts to Aaron, have written poems to Aaron, brought pictures saying, you know, we got justice in this case. We got him. Chris is in jail. And, you know, talking about her memory and how much she is missed. It's beautiful, and when you sit on the bench and look directly towards the mountain, you look directly towards the uh, mine shaft that they found her in. I mean, he did a lot of research when he put this together and everything, and he's got a bench out there, and, you know, he goes and waters it on a regular basis. He keeps me reports on it, sends me pictures on a regular basis. You know, God touched a lot of lives through this. And when the people were searching for her and stuff, and, you know, we would meet some of them, every one of them, I just felt like it was personal to them. It was like they were looking for their sister, their cousin, their niece, their daughter. You know, I mean, it was that important to them to find her. Erin Corwin had gone out into the desert of Joshua Tree, hoping to start a new future when her life was brutally cut short. But her impact would go far beyond that desert, both for those who knew and loved her and for those who didn't. 
I think that, you know, despite everything, despite the horrible way she was killed, you know, Erin is remembered for who she was in her life. This sweet, kind, gentle animal whisperer. This person that was just starting out her life and navigating through adulthood and learning mistakes along the way. I always felt everyone remembers what it's like being, you know, a teenage person, 19 years old, making mistakes. And Aaron had made one huge mistake in having an affair with, with Chris. Every, no one no one denies that. But she never had a chance to move past that, make amends, rectify it, and change her life um, because her life was cut short. And I didn't want her to be remembered as just a murder victim. And I wanted her to be remembered for who she was in life. And I think that that's actually happened. People remember Erin. Like I said, everyone at the Marine base, everyone in 29 Palms, they know who she was in her life. I feel like just about everybody that was involved with this case were, were taking it personal. I mean, God has touched so many people through Erin, and he, he is continuing to do Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. The show is produced by Katie Ferguson, with help from Becky Celestina, Sarah Grill, and Alyssa Martino. Huge thanks to Shanna Hogan. To learn more about Erin Corwin's story, pick up a copy of Shanna's new book, Secrets of a Marine's Wife, now available at any bookstore or as an audiobook. And I have an exciting announcement. We're giving away five copies of the book, which has exclusive details about the case. It's beautifully written by Shanna, whose voice you've heard throughout the podcast. The Sweepstakes is running through April 1st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time, so don't wait. Enter for your chance to win at bit.ly slash mpnsecrets. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash mpnsecrets. And I have one last piece of news before we go. And it's that we're not going anywhere. We'll be back with the beginning of Case Closed Season 2 next Tuesday. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.